available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Welcome to Outlook. I'm Peter Walters, and this edition is being recorded on Wednesday, the 5th of July, 2023. Coming up in the next 90 minutes, Harrison Ford stars again as Indiana Jones. Susan Kalman reckons we're never far from something familiar. We meet the backroom boys at Wimbledon. Dave Monks talks to Coventry's Poet Laureate, while Margaret looks at another of Coventry's special buildings. All that plus our usual features, sport, post bag and news from the Resource Centre. But we start with a review of the past week's local news with me and Eleanor. Outlook News. Tens of thousands went along to the Godiva Festival in Coventry to enjoy a weekend full of live music and entertainment for all the family. Around 70,000 people headed to the popular event at the War Memorial Park last Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Friday saw a thunderous headline performance from the enemy. Crowds turned out in their thousands to watch the band perform in what lead singer Tom Clark described as his favourite show ever. It set the tone for the three-day spectacular, which saw a dynamic mix of big musical names and the very best of the local music scene, such as Cobb Kozaks and Caitlin McCarthy. A host of stars hit the stage over the weekend, including Rudimental, Ella Eyre, Trevor Nelson, Melanie C, The Selector and Diversity. Culture was also celebrated at the popular event. A mix of singers, rappers, poets, spoken word artists, DJs and dancers took to the stage at the Powerhouse Youth Zone and Ancient Futures stage. Kadiva Festival was about more than live music this year as people enjoyed plenty of excitement on the family field, with roaming dinosaurs, stunning birds of prey, and energetic performances from entertainers like Johnny and the Raindrops. The field certainly provided a weekend of fun-filled entertainment for all the family. Councillor Abdul Salam Khan, Deputy Leader of Coventry City Council and Cabinet Member for Events, said, Godiva Festival continues to grow and is a fantastic celebration of everything that makes our city so special. I was delighted to see so many families and residents enjoying themselves across the weekend. I would like to say a big thank you to everyone who played their part in delivering a truly fantastic event, including sponsors, partners, our council staff, the police, our on-site security and the St John's Ambulance. It is thanks to their support that Kadiva Festival continues to be a fantastic weekend for people of all ages. National Express Coventry has confirmed that it will offer the £2 single fare as a rise in ticket prices looms. The firm previously said it was reviewing whether to continue offering the Get Around for £2 scheme, which the government says will now run until the end of October. But now the bus company has announced that it will continue its participation in the scheme. And it comes at a time when bus users across the city face the first rise in fares in six years. 
As of last Monday, the fare for an all-day ticket will rise 50p from £4 to £4.50, and a weekly pass will also rise £2 from £15 to £17. But National Express has said that anyone doing two journeys in a day will pay £4, the same as the current day ticket under the government scheme. Passengers using contactless will find their fare cap is automatically applied as long as they tap on with the same card or device and use the same operator. A spokesperson for National Express Coventry said, We recognise the challenges that household budgets are facing at the moment, so we're pleased to confirm we're participating in the government's extended £2 fare scheme. This will mean customers across Coventry and the wider West Midlands can beat the 3rd of July fare rises. If they do just two journeys a day and pay by contactless, their fare will be capped at £4, making sure they never overpay. We're on our customers' side and continue to work hard to provide great value bus travel on our comprehensive network, making it even easier for customers to ditch the car and Mm. switch to the bus. And more on the buses. More bus users in Coventry will benefit from cheaper travel thanks to a major U-turn from another operator. Following similar action by National Express Coventry, Arriva has confirmed it will extend its £2 single fare price cap in line with the Department for Transport's bus fare cap grant scheme. The government scheme designed to help out hard-up customers during the cost of living crisis was due to run until the end of June, but will now run till October the 31st. Cora Woodhouse, Marking and Customer Service Director, said, We know that many of our passengers have felt the pinch this year, and it is great news for our customers that we can pass on to them a saving in these difficult times. The scheme will continue to save our passengers money, and helps us carry on connecting communities, by keeping important bus services running. It's good to see that more people are using the bus, something we clearly care passionately about, because it's the best choice for the environment too. Arriva runs a number of services in the city, including the X6, connecting Coventry with Leicester. Since the initiative was introduced at the start of the year, Arriva has carried 16.5 million bus passengers at the discounted rate. The scheme, which caps the maximum cost of a single ticket at £2, applies to the vast majority of the Arriva network outside London. Around 45,000 pensioners in Coventry will get financial support from the government this winter to help with the continuing, the ongoing cost of living crisis. A total of over 46,000 people in Coventry, one in seven and a half of the city's population, received a winter fuel payment last year to help offset rising bills. And Laura Trott, Parliamentary Undersecretary for the Department for Work and Pensions, DWP, expects a similar number of elderly people in the city will qualify for pensioner cost of living payments in 2023-24. A £300 pensioner cost of living payment for those in receipt of pension credit is a top-up to winter fuel payments of £500 for those aged 66 to 79 and £600 for those aged 80 and over. The figures were made public by Ms Trott in Parliament in response to a question from Coventry North East Labour MP Colleen Fletcher. Mrs Fletcher, who will stand down from the constituency at the next general election, asked... 
What recent steps has the government has the department take taken to help support pensioners with increases in the cost of living in the Coventry North East constituency and also Coventry overall? In her response, Ms Trott said specific statistics relating to the pensioner cost of living payments were not available. However, the latest available winter fuel payment statistics for 2021-22 show that 14,352 customers in Coventry North East and 46,614 customers in Coventry overall received a winter fuel payment, she said. We expect a similar number of customers will receive the pensioner cost of living payments in 2023-24. From April 2023, benefits in the state pension, including the pension credit standard minimum guarantee, were increased by 10.1%, she said. Over 8 million UK households on eligible means-tested benefits, including the 1.4 million pensioners currently in receipt of pension credit, will receive additional cost-of-living payments totalling up to £900 in the 2023-24 financial year. Coventry City Council and Coventry Airport could provide £1 million to speed up plans for the West Midlands Gigafactory. The council says that, if approved, it would significantly reduce the time and cost required for the West Midlands Gigafactory to become operational. It believes that this would make the site even more attractive to global investors. The new funding would be used to undertake the detailed work required to prepare the site for a future investor. This includes planning, surveying, ground investigations, highways and architectural work, as well as commissioning specialist battery and power supply services. The funding would also support the marketing of the site to international audiences. As part of the plan, Coventry City Council would provide 500000 over two years. The same amount would be provided by joint venture partner Coventry Airport. Gigafactories make batteries for electric vehicles at a large scale. Experts predict the UK will need 10 more by 2040 to meet demand. It is thought through the West Midlands, Gigafactory could create up to 6,000 new jobs directly, as well as thousands more in the supply chain. Councillor Jim O'Boyle said, Without urgent action, the UK will lose out in the global race to develop batteries at scale. As the heart of the UK automotive sector, Coventry and the West Midlands must be at the very centre of the electrification strategy. The West Midlands Gigafactory is therefore critical to our future economic growth, job creation and sustainable future. Coventry City Council, along with our private sector partner, has taken the initiative to deliver this national priority, which will benefit every corner of the country. The Coventry Airport site is the only available proposed gigafactory location in the UK which is ready for investment, with planning consent in place. But we must keep up the momentum. Global requirements for battery manufacturing are fast moving. The proposal will be discussed at a meeting this month. Workers at Amazon are set to go on strike this month in a move they say will hugely impact the company. It's the latest round of industrial action for workers in Coventry who began their protest in January. 
A walkout will take place on Prime Week, which is one of the busiest times of the year for the multi-billion pound company. Hundreds will walk out from Tuesday, July the 11th to Thursday, July the 13th, in a long-running dispute over pay. GMB Union confirmed that nearly 900 workers are likely to take part in the industrial action, which will bring the total number of strike days to 22. A spokesman said the strikes will only end once the company agrees to pay workers an hourly rate of £15. Rachel Fagan, GMB senior organiser, said... GMB members in Coventry have time and time again shown that this fight will only end with £15 an hour and union rights. Prime Week can see Amazon taking as much as £2 billion in sales. It's grotesque that in this context they're denying low-paid workers here in the UK the right to a wage that pays the bills. When our members are standing on the picket line in Coventry next month, they will have a simple message for the company. You cannot get human beings on the cheap. A spokesman for Amazon said, We respect our employees' rights to join or not to join a union. We offer competitive pay, comprehensive benefits and opportunities for career growth, all while working in a safe, modern work environment. At Amazon, these benefits and opportunities come with the job, as does the ability to communicate directly with the leadership of the company. Also, there will be zero impact on our customers. It's, also, it's important to note Coventry is not a fulfilment centre that directly services customer orders. It is a centre that provides stock to our UK fulfilment centres. Coventry South MP Zara Sultana took the call for free school meals for all children to Downing Street. She handed in a letter signed by 90,000 people calling for every child to get a hot, healthy meal each day. More than 240 civic leaders have also added their names to the campaign, including London London Mayor Sadiq Khan and the Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham. It has also been signed by the likes of ex-footballer and BBC presenter Gary Lineker. Zara joined fellow MPs and campaigners outside No. 10 Downing Street and in the letter. In a speech, she slammed the injustice of child poverty and called on Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to guarantee every child gets a hot, healthy meal each day. The letter brought together a coalition including the National Education Union, Child Poverty Action Group and the Big Issue Group. Free school meals are currently being extended to all primary school pupils in Wales and Scotland and will be available next academic year in London. Across the rest of England, pupils in year three and up have to be from families earning less than 7,400 to qualify. The Labour MP said, Every child should be able to have a hot, healthy meal each day but this is being denied to kids up and down the country, forcing them to learn on empty stomachs. And things are getting worse as the cost of living crisis pushes even more families into poverty. Free school meals for all would tackle this injustice, guaranteeing every child in England, no matter what their background, gets a decent meal. This policy is achievable and affordable. It's being done in Wales, Scotland and London. The only thing missing is the political will. 
That's why today we came to Downing Street to call on the Prime Minister to guarantee no child has to learn on an empty stomach. A number of local businesses have been told to clean up their acts this year after a visit from the Food Standards Agency. Inspections have been carried out in 2023 at several eateries in Coventry. A total of 13 takeaways and shops have been handed a one-star hygiene rating so far this year, with urgent changes deemed necessary. Inspections are carried out by Coventry City Council, with the findings updated on the FSA website each time they're conducted. All of the ratings are based on how food is handled, cleanliness and the condition of the building. Other factors taken into consideration are hand-washing facilities and how the business manages food safety. All the local businesses handed a one-star hygiene rating in 2023, which were correct as of Friday, June the 30th, are Grace Mini Market, Riley Square, De Labon, Dawlish Drive, Mindy House, Lower Ford Street, Rainbow Dragon, Spon End, Tasty House, Holbrook Lane, Alsley Local, Alsley Old Road, Halal Meat Centre, Shelton Square, Burgers LDN, Central 6 Retail Park, Safari Mini Market, Harnell Lane East, Grill Feather, Grill Father, Lockhast Lane, SBCS Cafe, Clay Lane, Kurdish Grill, Victoria Street, and Magic Corn, Lower Precinct. A well-known Coventry author has released a series of unique Lady Cadiva statues. Erin Ashmore, who was born and bred in the city, has collaborated with artist Sarah Prinsloo and designer Jess Harvey to create the limited edition statues celebrating the city's most iconic figure. There are 30 limited edition statues, and each one has been individually designed and sculpted by Sarah. Aaron, founder of Etch and Pin, the firm that has released the statues, said, These unique pieces not only capture the essence of Lady Godiva's legacy, but also showcase the incredible talent and creativity of the artists involved. He spoke about the statues and why they are an important reminder for Coventrians to remember their history. I feel that Coventry has always had a civic pride, but felt it was built on being the underdog. So we were almost small Coventry next to Birmingham, Stratford and Solly Hull. We never felt as a city we were proud of being from Coventry, but now communities are a lot more embracing of the city's history. The author said a lot of the older audiences tell him they never had the chance to learn about these things when they were younger, and Aaron says being able to give them a wealth of information has been really valuable. He says local schools are now making use of his books in the curriculum to try to embrace the city's history. For every sale of a stone Cadiva statue, 10% of the proceeds will be donated to the Just Giving page that raises funds for the Labour and Neonatal Wards at UHCW in memory of Yuan Doug Johnson. The limited edition Lady Cadiva statues were exclusively available for purchase on the Etch and Pin website, but have now sold out. Etch and Pin say that if you would like 
one, go on their website and express an interest so that they can gauge the demand for maybe doing some more. They have released a number of Coventry-inspired products, including a range of pin badges and the Coventry sticker album. It has also released the book series featuring Lady Godiva's birthday suit, Coventry the Phoenix City and the time-travelling Coventry taxi. An office block in Coventry City Centre could be transformed into student accommodation if plans are approved. Developers have submitted proposals to turn the former NSPCC office building on Whitefriars Street into homes for students. A planning statement submitted as part of the applications says that there will be a total of 21 bedrooms in the building, six of which would be for two people, so 27 residents would live there at full capacity. Each bedroom would have an ensuite and access to communal kitchen and living areas, of which there would be one on each floor. There would also be bin storage, cycle storage and new perimeter landscaping and outdoor space to the rear of the building. The statement points out the building is close to Coventry University as in a, in a highly sustainable location. The site has ready access to the full range of city centre amenities, it adds. The development would continue to function as part of an established, highly accessible area which is close to social, community and medical facilities and is appropriate for student accommodation. A new Tesco Express is set to open in a former bank in Coventry City Centre. A place where people used to save their pounds could now become one where they spend them as plans show that the old UKEC Coventry in High Street is set to be one of the National Supermarket's express stores. The details have emerged in a planning application to Coventry City Council. It asks for permission for the installation of a new shop front and louvers with an automatic sliding door for the building, which is next to the current Barclays Bank. The application also explains that careful consideration has been given to the heritage of the area and the fact that it is within a conservation area. It is considered that the proposed shop front and louvres will match the existing design of the façade, maintaining and preserving the original appearance of the building, but also staying in keeping with the wider area in terms of its commercial context, the application explains. The proposed louvres will be located along the top of the frontage and coloured to match the remainder of the shop front, making them a minor addition to the façade. It is notable that there are examples of similar ones in close proximity to the application site within the hilltop conservation area. What is not detailed in the application is when the new changes should be made and the new store be opened if planning permission is granted. It also does not mention how many jobs the new store would create. Planners of the City Council are now looking at the minor application proposal and it is understood that a final decision on whether it gets the green light will be made at the end of July. Plans have been submitted to transform a family home in Coventry into a house of multiple occupancy. The property on Kingsway Upper Stoke would also have a ground floor wraparound extension if the plans are approved. An HMO is a property rented out by at least three people who are not from one household but share facilities such as the bathroom and kitchen.
They're also known as house shares and are often used by students and young professionals. Coventry City Council is moving to limit the number of HMOs in the city. It comes after a consultation with the public last year that sought views on potentially restricting them in 11 of 18 wards in the city which have the highest concentration. The policy was due to be submitted to the government for independent examination in May. The Kingsway property is close to a number of open spaces including Gosford Green, Gosford Park and Stoke Green. Documents submitted as part of the application state that the HMO would be six-bedroomed. A decision on whether to approve it will be delegated to a planning officer. Coventry is set to feature in a TV show by the man who helped to make the repair shop a huge ratings winner. Jay Blades will delve into the history of his West Midlands home following the success of another Channel 5 history series. The 53-year-old presenter and furniture restorer, one of the presenters on the BBC's The Repair Shop, will travel through Coventry to Birmingham and Wolverhampton, where he moved and established J and Co, a social enterprise to support disadvantaged and disengaged groups for Channel 5's J Blades the Midlands through time. Jay says everyone thinks of Cadbury's chocolate, canals and Peaky Blinders when you say Birmingham. And those things are true, but also so much more. I've lived in the West Midlands since 2015. It's often overlooked, but the reality is that without the humble West Midlands, the history of the UK, indeed the world, would not have been the same. Filming has been fascinating, surprising and eye-opening in equal measures. I love Birmingham and the black country. Sharing this series with you will be an utter pleasure and a tribute to the place I am proud to call home. In the three-part series, Jay will discover how the West Midlands is the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution, the home of Wedgwood, the Olympic Games, the theory of evolution and even the Balti. He previously took part in the series Jay Blades, East End Through Time, which finished airing this week. It explored his London upbringing and took a closer look at the history of the capital's multicultural East End. Outlook News Thanks to Eleanor for helping out and sorting out the news for us. Um, we'll move on to one or two announcements. As usual, we'll start with the lighting up times. Uh, sunrise at the moment is 4.52am and sunset 9.30pm. Um, we do actually have um, some what's on over the next few weeks, uh, which is an addition. Um, and so I'll just run through events right up until... At uh, the end of July, and there's some very interesting stuff here too. Um, first of all, the 7th to the 15th of July, Curtains. It's an amateur musical comedy at the Priory Theatre in Kenilworth. From 7th of July to the 18th of November, uh, a play called The Empress, Tanika Gupta's play set in the 19th century at the Shakespeare Theatre, coming for quite a long run there. Uh, 12th of July, Kinatic, musical experience at the Tin Music and Arts. The 12th to the 15th of July, The Cost of You, a family drama from the Criterion Theatre in Earlston. The 15th of July, 
Midsummer Night's Dream, um, unique interpretation, it says here, an outdoor performance in Coventry Cathedral. Uh, 21st of July, The Devout, which is a Depeche Mode tribute at the HMV Empire in Coventry. The 21st of July also, Paul McCaffrey, Scott, Jeff Innocent and Barry Dodds are at the Rialto in Coventry. The 22nd and the 23rd, Fleetwood Machine at the Priory Theatre in Kenilworth. On, also on the 23rd of July, Will Young at Warwick Castle. The 26th to the 30th of July, Zog at the Belgrade. The 27th to the 30th of July, Warwick Arts Festival. The 29th of July, the Beard and Beer Festival, that sounds good, uh, at Fargo Village in Coventry. Uh, and the 29th to the 30th of July, there's legendary jousting at Kenilworth Castle. So all that's to come. Quite a lot of things for us to do over the next month or so. Um, but coming back to more local affairs, um, let's hear from Resource Centre. Here's Hugh with the news. Hi, everyone. Well, it's going to be a quick one today. I know that I say that most weeks, but I mean it this time. Uh, we have a new group that started today, Wednesday, as I speak to you. The walking group. Well, it does pretty much what it says on the tin. An opportunity to go out and stretch your legs with volunteers helping you along the way. For the first number of weeks, it's going to take place in War Memorial Park, but we'll go further afield in due course. Numbers are limited at the moment by the numbers of volunteers we have, but we hope to be able to get more soon. If you're interested, please call the centre and speak to Chris Norman, who works Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays, and he'll put you on the list, and it may be a waiting list in the first instance. More activities will come in due course, and we'll keep you posted about them. We're still looking for volunteers, especially minibus drivers, but also in other groups. So if you know anyone, someone who's recently retired and might be looking for something to do, please encourage them to get in touch. Um, in the first instance, that should be with Rosie. Call the centre on 024-7671-7522 and uh, ask to be put through. Now, uh, we've got the Summer Garden Party coming up on Saturday, the 22nd of July, of course. Um, if you need the bus to attend, please let Claire or Heather or Carol know and we'll get you on a list. The event starts at 12, uh, no sooner than that, and goes on till 4pm. We're still looking uh, for things for the Tombola and all the raffle and all the nearly new table. And we um, really want people to volunteer to produce cakes for sale on the day. They're a really good earner for us. If we can get people to bake two or three cakes each, each especially the loaf tin style ones, we'll have that table filled. They freeze really well too, so they can be made well beforehand. And we're looking forward to welcoming the Lord Mayor and Lady Mayoress that day as well at 3pm. They're very busy and uh, we're the, going to be the large, last engagement at their request so that they can relax a bit. Uh, Rosie and I were invited to the Lord and Lady uh, Mayoress's uh, inaug inaugural dinner last Friday as the charity is one of the three being supported by them this year. It was a very glam affair, black tie, don't you know? And I've got to talk, I got to talk a bit about the resource centre and all its works. It was great to be able to network with the other charities as well. So I think that's the essential this week, and I'll be back with you next. Thanks to Hugh. And now here's Sarah with another sports report and what she's chosen to highlight this week. 
Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, wonderful listeners. It's Sarah with Sport. Now, Wimbledon has started. Well, literally, it started about two hours ago and rain has currently stopped play. But I'm not going to talk about tennis today. Instead, I'm going to start off by talking about golf. Yesterday at the Belfry, you know, that local golf course, it was the the final round of the British Masters. Now, you'll find that there's going to be quite a lot of golf over the next few weeks, both on the television and on sport, because we are gearing up to the Open. Don't you dare call it the British Open. It is the Open, which this year is in Hoylake. Now, going into the final round, there were seven tying for the lead. But then, with a bit of whittling down, the top three were... Daniel Hillier of New Zealand was the winner. Gunnar Weibo of America came second. And Oliver Wilson of England came third. Now, the reason why the top three were so important was those get automatic places in the open. So, we haven't got long to go. And there'll be, as I say, far more golf. We've got not least the Scottish Open coming up very soon. Now, back to football. I know it's not the football season, but the under-21s of England are playing in the European under-21s championships. And well done. They've made it so far to the semi-finals. They're playing that on Wednesday, so by the time you hear this, they will probably either be in the finals, which I hope they are, or they will have been knocked out. But well done, lads. Now, it has to be said, cricket. It was the, it was the second match of the Ashes, that is, against Australia, for both the men and the women. However... The difference being that the men are playing five straight five-day matches, whereas the women, it's a bit of a mix and match, and this time they were playing a T20, you know, a slash and dash jobby, where they play 20 overs, and, well, that decides the winner. Anyway, I'm afraid, having gone into these matches being 1-0 down. Both the men and the women are now 2-0 down. The men lost by 43 runs despite a heroic 155 by Ben Stokes, which included nine sixes. Now, you score a six when you don't just get to the boundary rope, but you 
hit it clearly right over without it bouncing or touching the ground first. Unfortunately, once he was out, the tail enders put up a grand show, but as I said, we were beaten by 43 runs. Now, the controversial point in this match was the run out of Johnny Bearstow, or the stomping of Johnny Bearstow. He thought the final ball of the innings had been bowled and was dead. Well, it had been bowled, but, and I know not why, there was some technicality that said it wasn't dead. He wandered off, not far, but just out of the crease. And the Australians saw it and they lobbed it at the wicket and he was basically stumped. Hmm, not really cricket. Anyway, the women in their T20 match lost by one run with one ball remaining. How close and frustrating is that now while we're talking about cricket as you know i am no fan of the game but i thought well you're doing sport on on the talking newspaper sarah it's about time you gend up a little bit on this so i did a bit of googling of the search engines apply and i found this article why do people love cricket? Now, I'm not going to read the article out per se. In fact, I'm going to add a few of my own little isms and I'm going to compare it with another sport, that being the noble art of tiddlywinks. One, it can be played anywhere. In a field, in the street, in the park, in a playground, anywhere. Hmm. Should we just say anywhere outside where there's enough room to bash a ball? Unlike tiddlywinks, which can be played anywhere. Well, I know it's stretching a point, but... Number two, it is a thrilling game. Now, probably up until yesterday, I would have said, nah. But having listened to the men's ashes and not got dressed until it was over, yes, I kind of have to admit it can be thrilling. Not so sure about me tiddlywinks, though. Number three. There are a range of different tournaments. Now, again, I would have to agree with this. Traditionally, when I was growing up, it was always the five-day test matches or the one days. But now, with the addition of the T20s, the bash and slash, as I call them, and the 100s, and according to this article, something called the T10, which is half of the T20. <gasps> that really must be bash, 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 and slash, slash, slash. There's, there are, and I think cricket has benefited, and it's made it more accessible. 
tiddlywinks. Mm, I'm not aware of a range of different stars to tiddle your winks, but who knows? Cricketers are not just cricketers anymore. No, indeed, particularly if they go up the jungle or become cooks and appear in chat show hosts or question of sport or all other inciting things. But also, as it's the article says here, they can start cricket academies, become coaches, become umpires, etc., etc. Well, I'm sure they could become an umpire in Tiddlywinks, but I'm not quite sure if they'd be well known enough to go up the jungle. Lucky people. Educational institutions everywhere, well, certainly in this country, encourage the playing of cricket. Yes, I can get that. And also with the universities, it's quite a, a fiercely contested league. And I'm not just talking about the Oxbridge, you know, the Oxford and Cambridge one. It is played in most schools and on a field with a hard ball, not just in the playground with a sort of aerated ball. Although I know that was practiced at Henry. Sorry, my old school. And finally, the health benefits of playing cricket. Now, this has definitely trumped tiddlywinks because, as the article talks about, there is fitness, there is cardio work, they now do strength training, a lot of flexibility, and also team building. So, I'm not there completely, but I am getting a little bit more sort of alike to cricket but watch this space oh and by the way Warwickshire are doing particularly well at the moment um, top of their group in the T20s and doing rather well in the league hmm perhaps there is something to cricket after all and finally now I'm afraid I am having said I wasn't just going to mention tennis and I'd like to talk about two remarkable women. Firstly, Venus Williams, who today is playing in the first round of Wimbledon at 43. Well done, Venus. That shows these 20-year-olds, doesn't it? And the other woman I would really like to praise is Martina Navratilova, who is due to be on the BBC commentary team. Now, some of you may remember that Martina was diagnosed with double cancer of both, I believe, the throat and the breast. And she's undergoing chemotherapy, radiotherapy, etc., etc. But you can't keep a good woman down. Well done, Martina. And that has been your sport. With thanks to Sarah for her sports report, and now over to Dave with your postbag. This is postbag.
discussion. Hello there and welcome to your postbag, which begins with Bob Syme, with a message for Carol Bloxham. Hello, this is Bob Syme. It was nice to hear that you've got a new dog, Carol. This is Carol Bloxham, your dog, Ken. And be interested to know how you're getting on with your dog. And I was surprised that you still remembered when I went through the manhole cover with uh, Jackson, my first guide dog. That was uh, on the Tamworth Road. Funny enough, it's only about somebody five doors down from where I actually live now. I've done for the last 15 years. I never think about it when I walk over it now, but it did set me back a bit when uh, I felt it giving under me. Uh, but uh, I went down and the police were called. Jackson was fine. I cut both of my legs, but um, I had to go straight to the hospital when the police would come. And the council had been notified about the manhole cover being damaged. Early in the morning, I went through it at lunchtime. And I cross over that manhole every, virtually every day, never thinking about it at all. But just keep us in touch how you're getting on with your dog. Uh, I'm fine with my dog, Topper. He's a big German shepherd. Take care, Carol, anyway. I was also surprised that uh, Sarah on Bands in the Park didn't know about Cowden Peace Orchard. Well, if you went into Cowden Park, Cowden Hall Park, that is, on the Waste Lane entrance, there's a big lake there now on the left, and the kids' playgrounds in front of you and on towards the right. If you went there and passed the lake, about uh, 150, 200 yards, keeping towards the left, you go over a little bridge and there's a gate there. Going that, through that gate is the Cowden Peace Orchard, and it is a proper orchard. If you walk right through there, there's another gate that comes onto Long Lane, right at the end of Long Lane, and you come out of there and turn left into, uh, left again, once you're on Brassel Green Road, into the garden centre. So it's actually a part of uh, Cowden Hall Park. Thank you, Bob. Well, I went to a picnic at the Peace Orchard, which I hope you'll hear about soon. In fact, I met there Coventry's poet laureate, called Emily, who I invited to the Monday Club recently. I sang a song there, with a special guest, called Ring of Bright Water by Val Dunican at the picnic. It's a song I once sang to Sheila, and it reminds me of the many times we went to Wrighton Pools together for duck therapy. Sheila once told me that I ought to sing more often, so just recently I joined the Nostalgics sing-along group in Cowden, that's the Avenue Bowling Club, Cowden, which meets between 10.30 and just after 12 on Wednesdays. It always finishes with a song that you're about to hear in Julia's latest report. A good old knees up at the Belgrade. Knees up at the brown, knees up at the brown. On the table you must go. We are the heroes. Never I cut you bending. Oh, so well they cut off. Knees up, knees up, no you freeze up. Knees up at the brown. Oh, what a man! 
My friend Jen and I were lost in music. Or was it the drubs? I don't know. It was at the Belgrade. Anyway, uh, who do you think was there? Everyone who was anyone, except my friend John, and we didn't miss him. There was Sister Sledge, Rose Royce, Gloria Gaynor, and even Wendy the Warden. She wasn't singing, though. If she did, I didn't hear her. She said the person in front of her went to sleep during the show. She snored so loud that poor old Wendy the Warden couldn't hear the songs. We missed the last two songs because we left early. Well, we had to get out before the pubs closed because I need the stiff double gin. Next week I'll tell you all about my wedding in Cyprus and what's it like getting drunk on Ouzo. Lots of love, Julia. Uh, well, I don't know whether it was a white wedding, but that colour is very important for contrast to help Edwina do her gardening. Hi, everybody. Still on the gardening team. There's so much to do. And some of you are still lucky enough to have some sight. If you have got some sight, it is a good idea to use white to give you a guideline of pots, a white pot here and there, or even big white puddles along the edge of your border. They're all guidelines, and this is something that I did when I could see. I use white plants as well. So you get the clarity of the colours against the white. Keep smiling everybody. Bye. Well, Edwina once came forth in the Blind Gardener of the Year competition and was interviewed on Radio 4's In Touch programme for the visually impaired. Graham has been listening to BBC CWR and asked recently what has happened to presenter Brodie Swain. This week he answered his own question. Further to my uh, comments on uh, uh, Brodie Swain on CWR, I have since heard presenters say that they are in for Brodie Swain, so he obviously must still work for the station. So it's surprising what you miss when you don't listen to them all the while. <laughs> anyway, regarding the council's uh, introduction of this public order um, clause in, in the city centre, they talk about uh, unsafe electric bikes and bikes and things. They don't actually say they're banning them altogether. And I'm surprised the amount of cyclists which whiz past me when I'm walking through town, and nobody seems to bother about them. And I don't think it helps with the positioning of some of the cycle racks. For example, there's a cycle rack just outside Wilkins. The nearest you can get to there on the road is where Trinity Street turns into Ironmonger Row. They're supposed to get off the bike and walk up there, but I don't, don't think they do. I think they just ride it. So, uh, yeah, um, I don't think the public order thing is really going to go far enough. 
Well, the bikes that the council are mainly concerned about are the electric bikes that the food deliverers ride very fast through the city centre where people walk. The bell bikes that Youngison and I hire, and I've done reports on them, are normally parked next to cycle lanes separate from the road which is best. We unlock them and pay for them with our mobile phones. Back to Bob Syme, who wants your recommendations for a mobile phone for visually impaired people. I'd like to know, if it's possible, what type of phones do you use? That's mobile phones. I've had a mobile since uh, 1992. I always have a Doro clam phone. I've never actually tried one of these smartphones or Android phones, whatever they are. I know some people have. I know Graham had a new phone a couple of years ago. I don't know if you've fully mastered it, Graham, but I'd be very interested to just find out if they are very difficult for you for a visually impaired person, because I can't see the numbers or everything. And my Dono phone that just closes and... Uh, fits in the pocket easily, where some of these smartphones are bigger, a lot bigger. But uh, I, I don't know how you feel for the numbers, or is there a cover that goes over it, a plastic cover I was told ages ago, and you, you feel for the numbers in the plastic holes in the cover, covers over the phone. But I, I'm not sure I've ever actually uh, tried one. So I'd be very interested, uh, please, if it's possible, what phone do you actually use for a mobile phone? Take care of yourselves. Bob Sign. Thanks, Bob. So tell us what mobile phone you use. Any tips to help you in the garden? Are you troubled with electric bikes in the town centre? Which radio stations do you like to listen to? Or anything else you like to listen to, including talking books, etc.? Thank you for your messages this week. I mean, you know the phone number. 024-76-717-522 and press 5 for Coventry Talking Newspaper and leave a message or any other way you'd like to talk or write to your fellow listeners. We'd love to hear from you. Please let's hear from you next time. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. Dave there with this week's Postbag. The elegant 18th century townhouse of St Michael's House in Priory Row, which was rebuilt and restored after major bomb damage in the war, is the subject of Margaret's talk on Coventry's significant buildings this week. Number 11 Priory Row is traditionally said to be one of the three buildings built by three brothers who bet that they could build the best house. The winner's house would be paid for by the losers. The other buildings were Kirby House and the Castle Grounds. If this story is true, it is impossible to say. What we can say for sure is that in 1721, David Wells purchased the site of Humphrey Burton. Wells demolished the existing building to construct his own townhouse. 
this grand house called the Priory was completed by 1741. David Wells was a wine cooper and the ironwork grape vines outside reflect his trade. He was also a church warden in St Michael's and Holy Trinity. Wells took an interest in the Priory remains and unearthed then incorporated them into his garden, these including the head of a king and a nun. In 1826, Wells' house was purchased by Nathaniel Troughton, a surgeon and artist who created many wonderful drawings of Coventry which survive in the archives. Troughton lived there until his death in 1868 leaving his wife Elizabeth and daughter Fanny in residence. The house was left to his daughter. Miss Trampton left to live in Berkshire and let it to Mrs. Bathe. In 1878, she sold the cellars below to Mr. Graham of Collins Wine Merchants. This company expanded from the cellars of now demolished number 12 and 13 Priory Row all the way up to the corner of Hilltop. In 1940, the building was gutted by firebombs and was at serious risk of being demolished, but luckily it was restored to its former beauty. Now, those of you who are world film buffs will be aware that Harrison Ford stars again in the latest Indiana Jones movie, his fifth and final outing with his battered fedora. In this article by Peter Sheridan, read by Bill Harrison, he reflects on four decades as our favourite daredevil archaeologist. Harrison Ford wearily picked himself up off the ground, dusted off his brown fedora hat, straightened his leather jacket and shook his head. That's the last time I'm falling down for you, he told James Mangold, director of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny which opens on June 30th. Ford was 37 years old when he first cracked Indy's whip. He's now 80, starring in the adventure-seeking archaeologist's fifth and final outing, and he has the aches and pains to prove it. Harrison is not unlike Indy, in the sense he's carrying with him the scars of all the films he's made, as well as his own private calamities as Mangold. He is this embodiment of all those bruises, broken bones, and being bounced off walls and being thrown to the floor over so many years. Stuff takes its toll. Even in his latest film, Ford wanted to do as many of the stunts as possible, despite the battering. He was the one fighting to do things, as Mangold. I would be like, no, not this one. You're 80 years old, just getting thrown to the ground is its own trauma. Ford was lucky only to injure his shoulder rehearsing a Dial of Destiny fight scene. Seven years ago he broke a leg filming Star Wars The Force Awakens when a set door on the Millennium Falcon fell on him. Then, nine months later, he shattered his pelvis and back, crash-landing a vintage single-engine plane on a California golf course. It's been quite a career. Veteran of Star Wars, Witness and Blade Runner, Ford wiped away tears after watching a montage of his many roles as he received an honorary award 
the Cannes Film Festival in May. I just saw my life flash before my eyes, he laughed. More tears flowed after a screening of Dial of Destiny. It's extraordinary to see a kind of relic of your life as it passes by, he said. The new film finds Indy retiring as a college professor when dragged into a fresh adventure that gives him a new lease of life. I'd always wanted to do a final chapter in the story, explains Ford. I wanted to see him diminished and revived. Ford is still working hard, starring in streaming comedy series Shrinking and Western drama 1923 opposite Helen Mirren. He insists this is his last adventure as Indy. This is it. I will not fall down for you again, he adds laughing. I need to sit down and rest a little bit. Film co-stars Fleabag creator Phoebe Waller-Bridge as Indy's troublemaking goddaughter Helena and Mads Nicholson as a villainous Nazi in the hunt for an ancient astronomical dial that could change the course of history. The first 25 minutes is set in 1944, where Ford is digitally re-aged to appear 35 years old, using advancements on the technology that made Robert De Niro and Al Pacino years younger in the 2019 drama The Irishman. I never loved the idea until I saw how it was accomplished in this case, which is very different from the way it's been done in other films I've seen, says Ford. I've got every frame of film, either printed or unprinted, of me during 40 years of working with Lucasfilm on various stuff. I can act the scene, and they sort through, with AI, every foot of film to find me in that same angle and light. It's bizarre, and it works. That's my actual face. I put little dots on my face, and I say the words, and they make it. It's fantastic. Ford doesn't find it strange seeing himself decades younger on screen, confessing, that's what I see when I look in the mirror. I still see brown hair. The script was originally littered with jokes about ageing. Ford and the producers removed them all. I'd rather create behaviour that is the joke of age, rather than talk about it, he says. Most of the film is set in 1969, amidst the space race and the Cold War when Indy's tomb-raiding exploits seem anachronistic. He brings a bullwhip to a gunfight with expectedly comic consequences. Walla Bridge says she had the time of her life during filming, but initially had a minor meltdown when offered the role. She said, it was a panic attack, but then I read the script. I mean, it was a good panic attack, also slight disbelief. When I read the script, I felt like I read it in five minutes. It was the most joyful and brilliant read, and then I was screaming, yes, into my own kitchen. 
The first day filming opposite Ford proved challenging. Seeing Harrison in the fedora was exciting, she says. I remember telling him I was quite nervous and I needed to sort of snap out of it. And he rolled up his script and slapped me round the head with it and said, does that help? And I was like, yes, actually it did. But again, thanks. At one point, Indy and Helena explore an ancient tomb hidden in a cave. I remember the childlike wonder I felt walking into that set, Wallabridge said. It was the same I felt imagining what that would be like watching those films as a child. I couldn't quite believe it and was a bit overwhelmed. It's such an extraordinary thing working on movies that have this scale. Really feel like you are living the adventure. I feel like all that stuff actually happened to me. Ford's advanced years barely slowed him down, with Waller Bridge admitting, keeping up with this guy is exhausting. Chicago-born actor, who turns 81 in July, can be irascible, even curmudgeonly, when dealing with the media. And while he plays the psychological therapist in Shrinking, he has little time for introspection. I'm not anti-therapy for anybody, except for myself, he says. I know who I am. While he loves acting, he has little time for Hollywood's self-aggrandizement and prefers retreating from Tinseltown's superficiality. He moved, 40 years ago, to an 800-acre ranch in Wyoming, where he lives with his wife, actress, Lister Flockhart, emerging only to film or promote a movie. My job at the moment is to help sell the product, he says bluntly. This is what they really pay me for. Acting, I'd do for free. While the digital technology may now exist to engineer Ford starring in a sixth Indiana Jones adventure, without ever leaving home or filming a single scene, he insists that will never happen. Nor will he miss playing Indiana Jones. I'm not built that way, he says. I'm very happy to have had the opportunity to play him. I'm especially happy that we have closed the circle on him and that we see the character in a different light and in different circumstances than we might expect. I'm very happy with the film we've made. Yet, he has no plans to retire from acting just yet. I like playing an old guy. If I wasn't having a good time, I would stop doing it. He looks at his de-aged younger self on the screen without envy. I don't look back and say, I wish I was that guy again. I'm really happy with age. I'm happy with the way I look, and I love being older. It was great to be young. And I could be dead, but I'm still working. Go figure. Another thrilling, but unfortunately the last, great adventure by Indiana Jones. From the thrills of the chase to the joy of a picnic in the Peace Orchard at Cowden Hall Park, which Dave went along to and spoke to Coventry's Poet Laureate. <laughs> Thank you. 
In Cowden Hall Park, Coventry, there was a peace orchard, and they were having a picnic, which I went along to. I first spoke to Coventry's first ever poet laureate, Emily Lowen Jones. I'm speaking to Coventry's Poet Laureate, Emily. Okay, can you tell us, first of all, what's going on, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, the Coventry Peace Orchard, many of your listeners might know, is um, a hub of, of activity, really supportive of the creative industry, and a lovely place to walk around as well. Um, the local school is Cardinal Newman, and that's who we've got here today. We've got the Year 7s. Um, so, I've been with them this morning, and we've been writing peace poetry. So we started off our event today with some of the students performing their poems in front of their whole year group, which was really, really brave, um, and they were incredible. We've had Chris Sidwell, who's a local musician, who's um, doing some songs. We've had Irish dancing, and now we've got the children coming up and doing a bit of karaoke, um, which is great fun. There's games, there's ice creams, there's waffles, and it's just a celebration of peace and a celebration of of Coventry and it's so wonderful that the school engages in this. Great, great. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? How did you all, uh, how long have you been writing poetry for? Sure. Um, I've been writing poetry uh, literally forever. Um, I have old notebooks from when I was like age six so I've proudly like done some limericks and things. Uh, it was always my passion. The first time I had a poem published was I was age nine and it was in my mum's magazine in Chatterbox magazine which I know a few uh, people have at the, the resource centre um, so that really I just I just loved I loved writing um, I had a lot of encouragement books were really special to me and eventually I really wanted to do it as a career it's not something you can just walk into there's not a job opening for that unfortunately um, so I worked in schools for a bit I worked uh, for an arts organisation and all the while in every spare moment just trying to get started as a poet it, turning up at events to perform, um, running workshops, and eventually there was like a tipping point where I was able to do it as an actual real job. So it is now my full-time job and has been for a few years. Um, and I was very lucky in 2021 to become Coventry's first poet laureate, and that was that was a real privilege. And I've had a wonderful two years of being involved in all sorts of events, like the 60th anniversary of the cathedral and creating a poem for that. Um, to work in in lots of local schools. I work all over the country but of course Coventry is very special to me uh, because it's my city and it's, it's a brilliant place. So I do talks, I tour a show, I perform, I get to go go all round um, and a few months ago I got to visit Coventry's twin city of Dresden and spend a week there and perform and, and work with schools. So it's been a really wonderful opportunity and, and I just hope that um, I've been able to get people excited about poetry as well. <laughs> And this is a poem written by Emily, a bottle full of happiness. I dug happiness up from a hole in the sand. I mixed it with laughter from a splashing wave and put them in a bottle by my bedside. On waking I would hold happiness up to the window and shake, spinning shimmering particles, dreams no longer landlocked. Eventually, I learnt happiness is a shapeshifter, the squelch of a muddy boot, the slosh of purple paint, the assurance in a stranger's smile, 
Each day I saw it in town, a thousand feathers ruffling, shuffling, honking at the water's edge. This afternoon I found it again, dancing with the raindrops, dancing under lampposts, bristling paper bags, shoppers scattering light particles of sand in a bottle. I'm speaking to Heather. Now, your dad started the Peace Orchard. That's right. It's okay. Yes. Can you talk about that, please? Yes, of course. Yes, he uh, he set up the Peace Orchard in 2017 um, as his legacy for peace and reconciliation and he wanted to create something for future generations um, so we worked together and luckily we got over £70,000 of funding um, to create the orchard which has got over 140 native apple trees and other fruit trees and uh, he died in 2019 and uh, we've carried on with the peace picture Nick and with activities in the orchard and I'm really proud to be his daughter but also to carry the legacy forward. Okay, so was your father involved in the war? Yes, my dad was, uh, he, he, he was on the Normandy landing beaches and he lived in Normandy for about 20 years as well. So he had a very, very sort of um, deep relationship with France and with the orchards in Normandy and in a sense he was trying to create a little bit of Normandy as well for the for the boys and girls that fell during the the Second World War he felt a deep commitment to quietly honouring their lives. Yes. Well, thank you very much. You're it's very really welcome. great achievements of your dad. I bet you're really proud of him. I thank am. You. I am. Thank yes. you very thank much you. indeed, thank Heather. Bye bye. Lovely to meet yeah. you. Well, I'm now sitting on a bench in the Peace Orchard. And on the bench it says, In loving memory of Dennis Joseph Davison, this orchard is his legacy and gift to generations to come and what a wonderful legacy thank you very much and that's all from the picnic at Cowden Peace Orchard Cowden Hall Park bye for now Susan Calman the diminutive Scottish comedian contributes regularly to Good Housekeeping magazine and in this article read by Nigel she says we're never far away from something familiar it's a small world, isn't it? And I don't just mean the fact that I'm under five foot tall, says Susan Coleman. What I mean is, despite the vastness of the planet, and irrespective of the fact that there are billions of people inhabiting it, sometimes an unexpected connection can make it feel the size of a village. Let me explain by confessing something to you. When I'm happy, I like to twirl like Julie Andrews did in The Sound of Music as she was wandering around the mountains. It may seem strange to randomly whirl myself about, but it makes me giddy with joy. Last year I was in New York and as I stood in Times Square I realised it was the perfect opportunity for, for some twirling action. I threw my hands out, looked up and spun around and around. Only after I stopped to catch my breath that I looked to my left and see someone else doing exactly the same thing. She was with a tour group from France, while I was visiting from Scotland. And yet there we were, 
whirling around in unison. Our eyes met briefly. We nodded to each other and smiled, then went our separate ways. Both of us were alive with the sound of music that day. It's not so much a sense of déjà vu when you get when these things happen. It's not disconcerting. It's invigorating. It's about realizing that the world isn't so big, and that we're never too far away from something that's familiar. I was filming recently in York, and as I strolled around York Minster, I told the film crew that the last time I was in that very place, I was on a school trip. I would have been in primary five class, I think, and I remember every moment like it was yesterday. As we wandered around the corner, I saw a small group of children, and swirled around them to prevent being mistaken for one of their number. I'm often herded onto a school bus by mistake. I got about three metres away when a tiny Glaswegian voice said, It's her off the television! Their teacher said that they were a party of children from Glasgow. With a growing sense of excitement, I inquired as to which school they attended. They said, as one, the high school of Glasgow. Well, that was my school, and they were in primary five. They were, in fact, on the same school trip I'd been on forty or so years earlier. It was one of those moments when you think you stepped through the looking glass. To make matters even stranger, one of the children said, My dad's your cousin, and he is. We went to the school together. So, 40 years after I was on a school trip, probably with that cousin, his child was there at the same time as I was. Possibly the most wonderful moment of random connection I've experienced happened to me recently on a ferry from the Isle of Man to the mainland. I started my journey by doing what I always do, secure a seat, ask a friend to watch my bag, immediately go to the toilet in case there's an emergency later. As I walked to the door of the ladies' room, it opened, and a woman walked out. We stared at each other for a moment, each knowing there was something strange happening. After a few seconds, we realised we were wearing the same, quite distinctive jumper. We both burst out laughing. I said, Jumper Twin! And she gave me a thumbs up, before returning back to her seat, safe in the knowledge we both had excellent taste. As I returned to my seat later through the canteen area, I realised that almost every voice I heard had a Scottish accent. I dismissed this, thinking it was a trick of the mind, that I was missing home so much, I was hearing things. I sat back down, only to hear a voice shouting, Susan, we're all from Glasgow! I turned round to see a large group of smiling people from my home city who were on holiday, including one woman who I think knew my granny. It turns out you can't be homesick when your home travels on a ferry with you, and no matter where I am in the world, I always seem to find a connection with someone, because it's a very small world that's most definitely worth toiling for. Indeed, the world does seem to be getting smaller, but I guess that's the result of easy worldwide communications and the advent of jet aircraft. The noise of jet aircraft taking off or landing at Heathrow will be a familiar foot noise to those fortunate enough to get a seat at one of the courts at Wimbledon Tennis. But getting the grass pristine in time for the tournament is all up to the ground staff. In this article, read by Sue, Michael Hinks meets the dedicated team. It's the week before Wimbledon, 
and the place is already a buzz. Those who make the tournament tick are in championships mode, with hoses strewn across the ground, Hawkeye being tested, seat cleaned, water dripping from the hanging baskets, and plants being transported across the site. This final polish is exactly what you would expect from an event that screams pristine. A two-week spectacle for which high-definition televisions were made. At the heart of the operation are the ground staff, a team that swells from 18 year-round to 31 during the championships, all tasked with a challenge no other Grand Slam tennis tournament faces, a surface that lives. Everything that happens on grass reflects on us. Will Briley, senior grounds person for Wimbledon and permanent member of the team since 2006, says, Weather is always our challenge because it's the one thing we can't control. We do everything we can to make sure these courts are as pristine as possible. It's a never-ending process. Just days after the tournament ends, the ground staff start their renovations, beginning on centre court and court one, with the grass either heavily scarified or taken up completely. Invariably, that depends on the level of weeds, but a steaming process first trialled in 2017 is now implemented across the main courts. It can take up to eight hours per court and helps to kill everything that's not wanted. Wimbledon has worked with the Sports Turf Research Institute in Yorkshire since 1992 on trials to find out which are the best grasses for tennis. Today they use a 100% perennial ryegrass, available in your local garden centre, which is a preferred to fescue or bent, which can both wear out more quickly. But they need a lot of it, 10 tonnes of seed and 200 tonnes of soil every year. The ground staff work around the weather during the winter, keeping the height of the grass to 13 millimetres to minimise the stress heading into spring, when the lawns are gradually cut millimetre after millimetre until they are at their match-ready 8 millimetre heights. This spring renovation, where ground staff are busy mowing and painting lines, prepares the courts first for members. They will arrive to play from mid-May and are allowed on all courts, bar, centre and one. When people say, all you do is cut grass, I try to explain that I needed my science at school, my biology, my plant soils science, my maths to work out these rates, says Briley. Things like Pythagoras' theorem, which when you're in school you're like, what's the point in this? but we actually use that when we're marking out the courts to get the perfect angles. Matthew Gibson is another well-qualified member of the ground staff. He studied sports turf for two years, did a one-year management top-up and worked his first Wimbledon in 2012. As we wander the grounds, Carlos Alcaraz, the men's top seed, can be seen clutching a bag from the Wimbledon shop. British number two, Dan Evans, is walking back from practice, 
Former world number one Victoria Azarenka is on the way to hers and former British number one Greg Rosetsky is filming. Brushing dead bits of grass one minute and then brushing shoulders with tennis royalty the next is part and parcel of the job. It's a little bit strange but you know it comes with the territory, says Gibson, who along with the other permanent grand staff team will head on to centre court for the presentation after the men's final. You can feel a little out of place when you have the Princess of Wales coming over saying, great tournament, well done everyone. Then Novak Djokovic turns around and says, the courts are great guys, well done. It's surreal to talk to them, but it's nice to hear the guy who's just won Wimbledon compliment the courts. Djokovic, favourite once more to win the men's singles, is partial to eating blades of grass in the aftermath of his triumph. A novel celebration, but his army of fans needn't worry. By the time Novak has won, we've gone past the point where the plant should be at a pure state, says Briley. It's not had a recent fertiliser application. It's not had any of the weed chemical which went down months ago. I wouldn't have a plate for myself, but there's no issue with having a couple of blades. From the backroom boys at Wimbledon to the joy of celebrating Graham's special birthday. This is the final part of Graham and Dave's tour to commemorate this significant date. Hello, we've arrived at Crew Heritage Centre. So, what are we standing by, Graham? Uh, we're standing by the Intervisi APT, which was um, uh, used for testing until 1986. And it's a tilting train. Yes, the tilting train, the tilting mechanism is uh, still is still in working order, and it's still used in the uh, Pendolinos and the uh, Hitachi trains today, the same technology. And the train we're still here now was located in the Comgy Railway Museum, which is now unfortunately shut. We moved here in 2018. What's the train going past? It's a, it's a Pullman train, yeah. Wow, looks nice. In uh, cream and brown colours. I think the Warman used to be uh, based in uh, crew and restoration of trains, I think. Really? Wow. Yeah, I think so, yeah. The, the, the famous pot mogul and railway collector. They also and got um, a, uh, a base for Finch's trains at Torsey, which is the Shakespeare Express. That is fantastic, being on that. Thank you. What are we overlooking now? Graham? We're looking at the, like, the, um, the, what they call like a goods yard, really, with all the other trains on display. Got the uh, NCC 125, which is still used in the Bristol area at the moment, sometimes I've seen it on cross country trains still using the Institute 125s yeah, brilliant and there's the military railway down there we hope to be going on soon and also it's, um, you can see the uh, view of the uh, west coast main line it goes all the way to you know, Glasgow all the way to Houston yeah okay so where are we going next? again into Liverpool next yeah We'll have a look at some of your trains in the yard and the inside where. Fantastic. Going past there is the um, Transport for Wales train, which goes to um, Chester, uh, there and back, and also with the trains to Wales you can get uh, via them. We get the announcements in the Welsh as well as English. You do? We heard them. 
What do you think of the Triple and Nature Railway, Graham? Yeah, very good, yeah. Excellent. It really is. I'm in a big huge signal box from talking to Rupert. Can you tell me a little bit about the uh, signal box, please? What's going well, on? Well, although we're in crew, this signal box came all the way up from Exeter. Exeter St David Station. It was one of two boxes that controlled the movements in, in Exeter. What you're seeing is a large lever frame of 131 levers with the uh, levers split into different colours. They're colour-coded as to their function. So the red levers control the signals, the black levers control the points, and the blue levers control the facing point locks. That locks the points so they don't move when the train goes over it. You can hear the bells. We talk to the other signal boxes around us by bell. We don't yeah. talk by, by uh, phone and uh, this box controls all the trains going through Exeter. We're back in 1960, uh, uh, as it was in those days, and we're handling around about 20 or 30 trains every hour, so it's one of the busiest boxes in the area. That's great. Thank you very much, Rupert. Right. Brilliant. And we're back in Liverpool for our last night of our holiday, and we've just been to the Cavern Club for some live music from the Shakers. Now, we've just walked past the statue of Eleanor Rigby sitting on a park bench all by herself, and you are welcome to sit by her. So there you are, that's great. It was sculpted by the singer Tommy Steele. He performed the show in 1981, and he made the offer to um, sit Liverpool City Council, and his fee was for the commission three pence, half sixpence, was a song by Tommy Steele. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's right. Great, from the uh, musical, from the film, half a sixpence, brilliant. We've arrived at St Michael's on the train, so uh, we've been here before, haven't we? Yes, it's uh, Festival Gardens, it's a part of a um, big garden festival in 1984. You had a Blue Peter Garden, there's a magic roundabout, um, and now, and also the yeah, marine, of course, that's now at the airport. The only bit that exists of the garden is a Japanese garden. Yeah. Okay, okay, wonderful. The Chinese garden. We are now by the Mersey, and Artists so pool, uh, promenade. That's where we are now. Artists pool and you promenade. You can see Alsmere uh, Ports on the opposite side. They make Vauxhall cars somewhere around there. And um, you got uh, Ports and Light to your um, middle. Yeah, we almost walked to there. And they got Birkenhead on the far right. And also, we have Bromborough on the opposite shore. And that's where you had your party. Yeah, it was a great party, yeah. <laughs> it was so, such a lovely atmosphere, what wasn't it? Everybody taking some turns to sing. It was yeah. really nice. Really enjoyed it. Okay, it's been a fantastic week. We've certainly done some walking and seen some sights. It's been marvellous. Thank you very much, Graham, for taking me. Okay, bye. Okay, bye.
final part of Graham's celebration brings this edition of Outlook to an end. So it's goodbye from the team and me, Peter Walters, until next week.